I'm Morgan. And I'm Jessica. You are listening to Suspicion. First off, for this week, I just want to say thank you to Jessica for all of your work you did last week while I was gone. And a big shout out of thanks to our sister Brittany for filling in. She did a great job. If you listened to last week's episode, BF Phonies, and it was really fun for me to edit it because then I got to listen and hear kind of all of the behind the scenes stuff that went on. But thanks, Britt, for filling in. Thanks, Britt. I missed you, Momo. I know. I I felt kind of left out. <laughs> yeah, no. We, I, don't worry, I still need you. Okay, good. <laughs> I did I did worry a little bit that she sounded better than me on the microphone, so maybe you would replace me with her. No, just different on the microphone. Okay. <laughs> All of last week's events aside, this week we are going to be talking about the story of Michelle Knight, Amanda Berry, and Gina De Jesus. Story takes place over the course of eleven years. So while we are doing our best to include all relevant details, there is a lot to this story that we will not be covering. And we will mention some books that each of these three women wrote about their experiences and would like to suggest that you read those for a more in-depth account of what these women went through. A lot of what they go through is very disturbing and gruesome. And while we want to do justice because these three women went through these experiences, I don't think that we can do it justice because their experiences are what they went through. And so by reading their books, you get a much better view of what they were feeling, what they were thinking, and how they survived. So with that, I am going to start with Michelle's story. On August 23rd, 2002, Michelle Knight was 21 years old. On this day, she was desperate as she walked into a family dollar store in Cleveland. Michelle was trying to find the location of a crucial meeting with social services to regain custody of her son, who had been placed in foster care after her mother's boyfriend broke his leg. Michelle was in the family daughter asking people if they could help her find where she was going, but no one was able to help. Was no one able to help because nobody knew where she was going or was everyone just kind of brushing her off? I don't, it didn't specify in my research, but maybe a little bit of Of both. both. But finally, a man spoke up and said he could help. She recognized the man as a father of one of her friends from the neighborhood. The man told her he could give her a ride to get to her meeting. He told Michelle that he needed to swing by his house before they could head there. Kind of a red flag. But hindsight, right? True. It's, it's, it's weird, though, because if it's someone who's, you're like, oh, this is my friend's dad. Especially from the neighborhood, too, because we grew up in a very close neighborhood, especially you and I. We were friends with all of the other kids, and we knew their parents very well. So, yeah, I guess if it's somebody that you kind of recognize, you feel a little bit more at ease than a complete stranger. For sure. It's easy to say, red flag. No. I know, you know I know. what happens. But when you're in that situation and you know the person, there's a level of comfort. And I hate that so much because I want to think that at the time, if I was in this scenario 
and a man said he could help me, and I kind of recognized him a little bit, but then he said, I need to stop by my house. I hope that I would be like, okay, this doesn't seem right, but I guess you really just have to go off of your instincts in the moment, and you're right. Hindsight is twenty twenty. She's also just trying to get to this meeting. I know. For her little son. Oh. The two got to talking in the car about Michelle's son, and the man mentioned he had puppies at his house, and that Michelle could grab one to take for her son. Michelle went into the man's house to get the puppy, and immediately noticed that the house was disgusting. I read, she said, I couldn't believe that my friend would live there. Oh, ugh. She was getting alarm bells at this point, and she was asking, oh, where's where's my friend? And he said, oh, she must be doing laundry in the basement. Come on, come see the puppies. And she was like, oh, I can't hear any puppies. Oh. And she's definitely questioning things at this point. The man leads Michelle upstairs to choose a puppy, and as Michelle walks into the room with the quote-unquote puppies, she hears the door slammed shut behind her. This is where it gets very gruesome, so listener discretion advised. Yeah, you may want to skip ahead a couple minutes if this might be too much for you. Mm -hmm. I will point out that Morgan and I watched the Lifetime movie about this story, and one of our older sisters actually reminded me that I made us stop watching the movie because this initial part was too upsetting for me. Mm -hmm. So keep that in mind. The man grabbed Michelle and pushed her to the ground. He tied an extension cord around her ankles and wrists and pulled her limbs together behind her back and wrapped the cord around her neck. He told her she wouldn't be there long. During her years in captivity, Michelle suffered absolutely horrifying sexual and physical abuse. The physical abuse led to a year of her life spent in and out of hospitals for treatment and lifelong injuries. And the fact that she survived this is absolutely astounding. I mean, the things that this man does, he is a sicko, and it just gets to me so much. She's such a strong woman. Oh, my God. Oh. Okay. It's so, it's so incredible that she kept going for 11 years. Yep. Michelle used a bucket for the bathroom and paper napkins as pads when she had her period. She would eat McDonald's once a day. Eventually, she was moved to an upstairs bedroom again where she was not allowed any clothes. She was not allowed to shower for the first eight months of her captivity. So just the constant degradation of human life is never ending in this situation for Michelle. Yeah. I mean, just all of the like basic tenets of being a human showering clothes, clothes comfort eating or even just having a pad to I use know. <sighs> he takes every little thing he can from her so i have a question for you then and i've been thinking about this question for a while a couple weeks ago we talked about uh, michelina and how she was kidnapped by her former boyfriend, or her on-again, off-again boyfriend, and then buried, buried alive. My question for you is, is it scarier to be attacked by somebody that you know or by a complete stranger? Stranger. I always just think about 
like with Susan Kuhnhausen. Like yeah. If you walk into your home and see someone you don't know, mm-hmm. to me, that's absolutely terrifying. I yeah. Think, I don't know. I, I Definitely a stranger. I was thinking the same thing, but then actually just right now thought for a stranger, I wouldn't feel any reserve to hurt them. You know, like if I had to kind of protect myself and attack. But if it was somebody that I kind of knew, maybe I would feel a little bit more reserved to do severe damage. Oh, no. Let me tell you. If you attacked <laughs> me, I would be taking you down. Well, that wouldn't really... I would really... have no reservation. You'd be... Just we grew up wrestling with each other. And, and come I on. No, always I always won. won. No. Yes. No, you did not. The bulldozer. My signature move was a surefire win. No, it was not. You would not even move me an inch. Yes, I would. But, oh, how do we go from that and then come back to... To this? I think we just needed a little bit of relief. And we're not even... We're not even... We're not even in in it. The way through. Oh, okay. You guys, it gets way worse. I know. Okay, okay. I'll keep going. She was raped again and again, six or seven times a day at some points. The sexual abuse led to five pregnancies that were then miscarried due to starvation and beating imposed upon her by her abductor. And what a trauma for your body to go through. In April 2003, Michelle saw news about Amanda Berry's disappearance. And when she heard music blasting from the basement, she knew Amanda had been taken by her same abductor. Michelle did meet Amanda, but rarely saw her for months. She knew that the man preferred her, Amanda, though, as she had a bigger room, color TV, and was allowed to wear clothes. That's upsetting, too, because that pins them against each other. Yes. He used, like, favoritism. To control them. As a way to control them. Yeah, yeah. When Gina de Jesus was taken, she was chained with Michelle for a while in her room. And he would come and rape one of them while the other laid helpless. I read Michelle said that sometimes she would even beg for her to be raped. Because Gina, at this point... She's the youngest. She was the youngest. Oh. And in 2006, Michelle helped Amanda actually give birth. And she was told by her doctor that if the baby died, Michelle would be killed. This is so sick right now. I know, me too. That was kind of a condensed version of Michelle's abduction and few years in captivity. Almost a year after Michelle was taken. So Michelle was, Michelle was abducted in August of 2002. On April 21st, 2003, Amanda Berry was abducted just one day before her 17th birthday. On that day, Amanda got up, got ready for work, and she later states that she almost called off going to work, and she kind of wonders what her life would have been like if she had. The same thing goes for Gina and Michelle. You just mm-hmm. think about if you... If one thing had happened differently mm-hmm. during the, that day, what would life would have been? Had a totally different life. Alex believes a lot in the butterfly effect to the point where he'll uh, come into our apartment 
and he'll be like, what if the way that I opened that door just changed everything for someone to that, to that level? But it does actually make sense. Like if, how does that change my life course? But to think back on the most traumatic day of your life and think, what if I had just called off from, called off work and wasn't responsible and didn't go in? What would have happened? Ooh. I imagine it's hard to to really go down that rabbit hole for them, though. And you can't. You can't do that no. because then that just blames you. You know, it brings a whole lot of blame into it. And there's no blame because they did nothing wrong. Exactly. Yep. As Amanda was walking home after work, she saw a man with his daughter who she recognized. Later, as she's walking, that same man pulled up next to her and asked her if she needed a ride. His daughter was no longer there, but Amanda accepted the ride because she had recognized his daughter as a classmate from middle school. So this is, again, someone that she recognizes, and that's the same with Michelle. Michelle had recognized this man from her neighborhood. The man asked Amanda if she would like to go see her friend from middle school at his house, and Amanda agreed. She entered the man's home and was never able to leave for 10 years. The man took Amanda upstairs and showed her a woman sleeping, who she later learned was Michelle. Michelle had been captive already for almost a year. In Amanda's words, quote, he took me to the next bedroom and it was just really dark in there and he didn't turn on the lights. And there was a little, like, a little room off of the bigger bedroom, kind of a big closet. And he took me in there and he told me to pull down my pants. And from there I knew, like, this was not going to be good, unquote. Yeah, yeah. I need to pause. I know, let's take a, take a second. So I'll take a collective breath. Yeah. The man then took Amanda to the basement. He taped her wrists and ankles and put a belt around her ankles over the tape. He put a helmet over her head, told her to be quiet, and he'd take her home. She was then chained to a pole and left in the dark with a television. On the fourth day of her captivity, Amanda watched her mother and sister on television talking about her being missing. And on that day, she swore to herself that she'd make it home. So her mother, Amanda's mother, was a huge force to be reckoned with when it came to advocating for her daughter's return. And she was on all over the news in Ohio and across the nation pleading for her daughter's return. And unfortunately, uh, three years after she went missing, her mother passed away, never knowing what happened to her daughter, but her sister... Kept it going. Kept it going. And um, I, I just want to say right now so that this is recorded, and if you ever need it, you have it. But if I ever go missing, Jessica, you can have access to my phone records, my bank accounts. She, Everybody give her everything because, you know, you never know, but I don't want you to have to go through, like, any kind of red tape at all. Right. Also, we can put on the record – we would never run away. So please never. do not pause. Come get us, please. Never. And I didn't see anything about them not taking this seriously, except in Except Michelle. for Michelle's case. So upsetting. Yeah, so Michelle's family, actually, they 
believed that she had run away because of all of the issues she was going through with um, her son's custody. But Michelle, Michelle did not come from a good home. She did it. Her mom was definitely not looking out for her best interest. I think after 15, oh, I can't remember. I'm, I'm going to have to confirm this. But not long after Michelle's disappearance, they actually took her off the missing persons database. Oh God. Wow. Mm-hmm. Amanda was eventually moved upstairs As she struggled the first week, the man gave Amanda a diary with a tiny lock and key where she was able to write to pass the time, which is, again, very interesting. Amanda's first entry was hopeful, saying, quote, You never know what you got till it's gone. I just can't wait to go home. I'm 17 now, but don't have a life. But he told me I'm young and will go home before summer. Another two months, exclamation point, unquote. Oh, I know. It's just he he constantly would tell them, give them a little ray of hope, and then crush it. At yeah. one point, he gave Michelle a puppy, actually, and then killed it in front of her. Oh, my God. And he told Amanda, when I find another girl, I'll let you go. So he just played mind games with them. Yeah, so upsetting. I just, I don't understand how they survived 11 years. 11 years. 11 years. That's, That's a, a long, long time. time. Strong women. As you pointed out that he would do little things to kind of torment them, he actually called Amanda's family after a week of her being in his captivity. The call led police to within two blocks of Amanda's location. Two blocks. But it was 2003, and the FBI was just starting to develop the technology to track a cell phone location if it was on. But the abductor never turned her phone on again. Amanda was kept in a filthy room in the house where she had to use a bucket to use the bathroom, and she was given food to eat once a day. She was actually able to shower once a week, but... She was forced to shower with her abductor. Amanda says that she had to numb herself to the sexual abuse, and she came up with a system to record the number of times she was abused in case authorities found it one day, they would be able to punish him. Just so smart of her. It kind of, it does remind me of the Susan uh, Walters or Susan Kuhnhausen case because... In that case, she said that she was biting him, she was scratching him, she took his wallet out of his pants and threw it somewhere because she thought if she dies, she wants police to find evidence of this person everywhere. And I feel like this is kind of the same thing where she's like, if I die, I want there to be record of the abuse. It's really trying to make sure you get justice for yourself. Which is unbelievable. Gina De Jesus was 14 years old on April 2nd, 2004. So this is almost exactly a year after Amanda was taken. So Michelle would have been there for two years. She was walking home from school with a friend, Arlene, when they decided it would be a good idea for if both of them went to Gina's home to hang out. 
Gina gave Arlene some of her bus money to call her mom and ask if she could go to Gina's. But Arlene was told that she couldn't. This, for me, is another what-if moment. What if they had both gone? What if they hadn't decided this plan and Gina had all her bus money? At that point, Gina and Arlene parted ways. Since Gina was now short of bus money, she started walking a long walk home. But Arlene's father pulled up and asked if she needed a ride and if she could help him find his daughter. They soon arrived at the man's house where he asked if she could help him move some equipment. Again, I can see this was maybe not a super red flag in the moment because this is her friend's dad. But I want to point something out that I think, I don't know where I heard this, or but is an amazing point. Adults don't need kids' help. It's so right. They don't. If an adult asks a child for help, take that as a, a not great sign, I think. The problem is, though, is that, you know me, I'm a big people pleaser. And as a kid, if somebody asked me for help, I probably would have helped. And this, there's this dynamic of respect for your elders exactly. kind of thing. And uh, I, I also want to point out that that's a blanket statement. You know, if your mom is asking you for help. True. Help your mom. <laughs> help your mom. <laughs> Uh, but if a random stranger, especially a large man, yeah. or you're a petite woman, you're not the person to help move equipment. No, no. You can. Women can do anything. But I'm sure you'd get there faster with a, another large man. Yes. At his house, the man started touching Gina. Ugh. And she quickly told him to stop and said, you know, he could go to jail for this. But he said, okay, fine, you can leave, but you have to go out another door. And she ends up in the basement like Amanda and Michelle before her and chained up. This is so upsetting too because Gina really knows him because she's friends with his daughter. I do wonder though how much she knew him because like, clearly the his daughters didn't live with him. him. You're right. Yeah, you're right. So she might not have known him as well as you would think of another good friend, his father. He didn't chain her tight enough, though. And Gina tried to escape, but he grabbed her, overpowered her. After one month in captivity, the man raped Gina for the first time. Gina, she had to follow the same ruthlessly enforced house rules and was abused in much the same way as the other women. Like we mentioned before, the abductor would drive the women apart by varying what amount of food they were given and what clothes he gave them. And he would play mind games with the women, like making them play Russian roulette, which you know, is like with, when you have a revolver, you yeah, put one bullet. Circling back to something that happened more specifically with Amanda, but really impacted all of the women's time in the house. We mentioned this with Michelle. On Christmas 2006, Amanda gave birth. When she first realized she was pregnant, she couldn't believe it because she never ate and was in this horrible environment. The abductor got a baby pool for her to give birth and called on Michelle to deliver the baby. Amanda's baby girl, Jocelyn, was born hours later. Jocelyn was immediately loved by Amanda and really, from what I read, it just seemed like all of the women. They really catered to her, and she allowed them to be a little distracted from what was going on with them. While Jocelyn was locked in the room with Amanda, she was allowed to leave the house occasionally. 
And from what I read, it seems like when Jocelyn was born, some of the rules loosened a little bit. Mm -hmm. For example, Jocelyn asked at one point what the bracelets on her mommy were, which was chains. And after that, um, Amanda was was not chained very often. And so, you know, things shifted a little bit. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, some of that is what led to the possibility of their escape. As mentioned, these women are survivors, so they did end up escaping. But before this, I just want to point out two events that stuck out to me in my research. So the first was that in April of 2005, John Walsh and America's Most Wanted, they did a feature story on Amanda and Gina they were taken from almost the exact same spot, almost a y- exactly a year apart. So police was able to put their abductions together. And again, we mentioned a lot that Amanda's mother was very vocal and very invested in the media and finding her daughter. So which just makes me feel so upset for Michelle because nobody knew that she was there too. Mm-hmm. On the America's Most Wanted feature on Amanda and Gina, one of the people interviewed is Arlene Castro, the friend who last saw Gina in April of 2004. So this is the friend who Gina gave her bus money to so she could call her mom to see if she could come over to Gina's house. This is also the friend whose father, we would find out, is Ariel Castro, who eventually we come to learn picks up Gina and Amanda and Michelle almost exactly a year before the woman escaped a woman named Grimilda she was the former partner of Ariel Castro she dies she had accused Castro of domestic violence and of abducting their daughters but charges against him had been dismissed on a technicality So this stuck out to me because it again comes to that what if moment of who knows what would have happened if these charges had not been dismissed. Would the police have gone to his home and investigated, dug a little deeper? Maybe they would have seen, you know, the chains or a child's toy somewhere of Jocelyn's. It is tricky because I always think about these cases and there has to be a balance between letting the police do like their in job. This case, you're like, they should have gone back and they should do whatever it takes and they should be investigating yeah. deeper. But then also, you know, if there was nothing to find and you also want your freedoms respected. So I, I Exactly. Just, I mean, it is innocent until proven guilty as well. Right. There's this weird dance of how deep to go. If someone's on parole, I feel like, I, I don't know. It's so tricky. It's so mm-hmm. tricky. Now let's get to the escape. We've gone through 11 years of abuse, captivity, degradation. Now on to the freedom. On May 6, 2013, the youngest woman in the home, the six-year-old daughter of Amanda, goes downstairs in the house and tells the women that her dad is not there and his car is gone. For some reason, for the first time in 10 years, Amanda said that her bedroom door was unlocked. And when she went downstairs, the front door was open. And the storm 
door was padlocked shut, but it was kind of broken at the bottom. So she was able to kind of kick it out a little bit because it wasn't a storm door was like aluminum or something. It was more, it was made of a mix. Yeah, 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 exactly. She was able to get her arm out through the crack of that door and she starts screaming for help and she's waving her arm and a neighbor named Charles Ramsey, who we're going to get to a little bit more towards the end because he is just the greatest man. Yeah. And I mean, of course, I don't know anything else about his life, but from being involved in this case, but I did see that um, another neighbor had seen her waving her arm and screaming, but got scared or nervous and walked away. Whereas Charles Ramsey said that he heard someone going nuts, screaming to get outside. And so he ran over and at first he told her like, open the door and get out. And she said, she can't, it's locked. And so he helps her kind of kick out the bottom of the door. She is able to get herself out and Jocelyn, her daughter, and they go across the street to Ramsey's home and they call 911. We have the transcript of Amanda's 911 call. Jess, do you want to do the dispatcher and I'll be the caller? Sounds good. Okay. Caller. Help me. I'm Amanda Berry. You need police, fire, ambulance? I need police. Okay, and what's going on there? I've been kidnapped and I've been missing for 10 years and I'm I'm here, I'm free now. Okay, and what's your address? Caller, crying. Okay, talk to the police when they get there. Okay, hello? Okay, talk to the police when they get there. Okay, unintelligible. We're going to send them as soon as we get a car open. No, I need them now before he gets back. All right, we're sending them, okay? Okay, I mean, like, who's the guy you're trying, who's the guy who went out? Um, his name is Ariel Castro. Okay, how old is he? He's like 52. And, uh, I'm Amanda Berry. I've been on the news for the last 10 years. I got, I got that, dear. And you say, what was his name again? Uh, Ariel Castro. And is he white, black, or Hispanic? Uh, Hispanic. What's he wearing? Caller agitated. I don't know because he's not here right now. That's why I ran away. When he left, what was he wearing? Who knows? Unintelligible. The police are on their way. Talk to them when they get there. Huh? I, okay. I told you they're on their way. Talk to them when they get there. Okay. All right. Okay. Bye. Can you just, I can't even imagine kind of the frustration that she must have been feeling on the phone because her adrenaline's pumping. She's been, she's got out of that house. She doesn't know where he is. She doesn't know when he's coming back. So but she be, knows the two other women are, are still, still in there. So she's, get somebody here now. Let's go. And police do actually arrive pretty quickly on the scene. And I can imagine even if it's the shortest amount of time for Amanda. Oh, I felt it like forever. felt like forever because... I imagine what you're thinking is, if he gets back and I'm gone, is he just going to kill yeah. the other two women? I mean, it's not like something he hasn't threatened to do in the past. So that actually brings up a good point. While this was happening, while Amanda was at Charles Ramsey's house and on the phone with 911, Gina said that she thought that Amanda had been caught by Castro as she was trying to escape. So they both knew that she was going to try to make a run for it. But 
when they heard kind of like the commotion at the door, they thought that he had come home and taken her. Michelle wanted to run out to help her. But Gina at first was like, uh, I don't know. And then she started go the other way. She started to think like, oh, okay, maybe we should go out and help her. And then Michelle was like, okay, yes, let's go. Let's do this. And then Gina got scared and she kind of like talked her out of it. And they stayed in their room because they were just like so afraid of Castro's rage. So I put this quote in by Amanda because I think it really also like puts into perspective, you know, this time, this moment. And she says, quote, at first it was so unreal. When the cops had gotten there, I told them there's two other girls in the house. They put me in a car and that's when they ran upstairs to get them. And once I saw that, I'm like, this is it. I think we're free now, unquote. I can't imagine the feelings that would be coursing through your body. I know. With all of them in this moment. And how about the fact that she says, I think we're free yeah. now. She still doesn't know. It's probably they. It's probably so hard to feel safe, extreme like hope or safety after mm-hmm. all of this time. Originally, Castro's two brothers were thought to be involved in the kidnappings, but later charges for both brothers would be dropped. Neighbors had no idea about the women being in this house. Even Ramsey, who helped them escape, said he had been to barbecues with Castro and he seemed okay. I, I read in research that sometimes he would Castro would have people over to the house, but mm-hmm. it would blast the radio so loud to drown out any chance if they had screamed, but they also would be in those motorcycle helmets, and they were all super afraid of him. So, yeah, I think the only person to blame in this situation is Castro. Castro. At first, Castro is charged with four counts of kidnapping and three counts of rape, with bail set at $8 million. Even though that's a lot... A lot of bail. How is he even awarded bail? Yeah, and at $8 million, what's the kind of the point? Exactly. I don't know how that system works. I don't either. A month later, Castro was indicted on 329 counts. So seven counts to 329. 139 counts of rape. 177 counts of kidnapping. Seven counts of gross sexual imposition. Three counts of felonious assault two counts of aggravated murder for termination of another's pregnancy, and one count of possession of criminal tools. Later on, he gets more indictments, which all fall under these same categories. And we we put this in because it's really interesting how kind of specific it is. But if you think back to Amanda's system of keeping track, it makes sense. Mm -hmm. And basically, this is just to show that there's so much evidence against him. And the justice system is like, we are going to pinpoint every little aspect of what you did to these three women, and you're going to pay for every little thing you did. Whoop, whoop. I know. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is like, that's the only kind of justice mm-hmm. you can get, and I guess hope for in this situation. A sigh of relief that not only are you free, but people believe your story and they're going to hold somebody accountable to like every aspect of your trauma. In 2013, Castro agrees to a plea deal, which recommends that he be sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. 
Under the deal, he agrees to plead guilty to 937 counts. He is then sentenced to life in prison plus 1,000 years. I, I love, <laughs> yeah. Plus 1,000 years. I love the plus 1,000 years. Yeah. And, you know, some people might think like, oh, well, why would they even say that? It doesn't make sense. But I just love it because it's like you're not only going to spend the rest of your life in prison, there's no hope for you to get out of here. And it's like you are so absolutely absurdly evil that we're Mm going to give you an absurdly long sentence. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Unfortunately, a couple months after he is in prison, he is found dead in his cell. Uh, Absolutely ridiculous. So he (laughs) apparently committed suicide. And I am so, (laughs) I am so livid right now because you kept three women in prison for 11 years tortured them, abused them, like mentally, physically, emotionally, sexually. And then you can only take a couple months. Uh Uh-huh. I am fired up. Uh. It actually is like hurting my brain. I'm so angered right now. You do. Yeah. Like what kind of like small, low, horrible, cowardly, disgusting human being are you? Well, he's like, I know, but he's not even human. I mean, like, what happened to Michelle and Gina and Amanda? After they're free, um, Michelle has to spend a year in and out of hospitals. At one point, she is even taken to hospice care because the doctors told her that she had two days to live. She had a bacteria infection that was just raging through her body. But At some point, she wanted to just give up, but she said that she was kept thinking about her son. Yeah. And she was like, I don't want my son to think that I took the easy way out. And let's all cry. I mean, she just... Like, that's the easy way out. I mean... I know. She's been fighting for 11 years. I know. I know. But she was like, you know what? I got to keep going. Yeah. She starts to write down her feelings, and like we mentioned she would go on to release two memoirs. So the first is called um, Finding Me, A Decade of Darkness, A Life Reclaimed. Love the title. Cop girl. And then in uh, 2018, she releases another book, Life After Darkness, Finding Healing and Happiness After the Cleveland Kidnappings. Um, We'll post both of those, uh, links to both of those books on our website. Um, definitely, I think you should read both of them together. Something that's interesting is that Amanda and Gina also release a book, but they release a book together, and it's called Hope, a Memoir of Survival in Cleveland. In 2016, Michelle met a man through mutual friends on Facebook, and they got married. Yay. Yay. Um, she ends up changing her name but I didn't really want to, you know, broadcast her new name out there. Um, you can definitely find it when you search her, search her but I don't think it's for me to really it say out loud. Sure. Yeah. So as of 2018, People Magazine did a Where Are They Now kind of story on the three women. So she um, was traveling around the world as a public speaker. She launched a foundation called Lily's Ray of Hope, which we'll talk a little bit more about in our organization spotlight. 
Two years after her abduction, um, her son was adopted by a very nice family. And although, you know, he kept her going every day of her captivity and while she was in the hospital, um, she decided that because he was so young when she went missing, she was just going to kind of let him be because she didn't think that he would really have remembered a lot. She thought that if he wants to contact her later on in his life, she is more than happy to meet with him. And, you know, she's always loved him, but she realized that she doesn't want to, like, rip him away from this life that he's he's built. I think that shows what kind of mother in person she is. Mm-hmm. I mean, as, as a parent, I think, you know, something our parents have shown us is that, you know, you do what's best for your child. Yes. And so I'm sure it's so difficult for her to not be able to be with him mm-hmm. and, and be that mother for him. But she is recognizing what's best for him. Yeah. And I think that's that's a beautiful testimonial to her as a mother. Amanda was inspired by all of the news segments that she saw while she was captive featuring her story. And now she hosts a daily news segment on Cleveland's Fox 8 where she talks about and shows pictures of missing people in Ohio. And she wants missing people to know that the public is still looking for them to continue to give them hope. Like it did for her. Like it did for her, you're right. And she mentions that her daughter is doing great. She's such a caring little girl. And Gina um, has been kind of living a little bit of a low-key lifestyle. Um, She is living with her family in Ohio still, but she has started working with the Northeast Ohio Amber Alert Committee, and um, she has been working through that with police on helping survivors and helping the families of missing people. Oh, that's awesome. Mm -hmm. So to end this on a, all of the women are doing very well considering everything they went through. I remember this story coming out, because this was 2013. Me too. So I was a sophomore in college. Yeah. So I remember, like, seeing the news segments of this and stuff. But also, I, I hate this, but the thing I remember the most was the internet sensation of Charles Ramsey, the neighbor who helped them escape. Because he gives um, an interview, like, almost immediately after all this happened. And so he says, and this is quote from the interview, and you can find this on YouTube, you can find this on Google. He says, quote, I heard screaming. I was eating my McDonald's. I come outside, and I see this girl going nuts trying to get out of her house. I knew something was wrong when a pretty little white girl ran into a black man's arms Dead giveaway, unquote. <laughs> and that last line is like what the internet took and he's he's been auto-tuned, like everything. But because he mentioned the McDonald's, there was like a campaign for McDonald's to give him free food for life. And um, McDonald's actually did give him free food for a year. And I told you this before we started, but McDonald's, the, the free food for a year that they gave him, it was in... They gave it to him in, like, gift cards, so he got a certain number of gift cards for, like, 20 bucks or something. I found out that he actually gave most of his gift cards away to homeless people. 
so nice. Come on. Yeah, this guy he's, is he's the best. Stand up. Stand up guy. Stand up guy. But Charles Ramsey. Funny guy and great guy. Great guy, yeah. Oh, okay. That was so, a lot. This has been a lot. I kind of feel like I have a little bit of trouble breathing. Thank you to everyone who stuck through this. Stuck through this. If you had to fast forward through a little bit of it, I respect that it's hard to, it's a lot to take in what these women experienced. So this week for our organization spotlight, we are going to focus on Lily's Ray of Hope. Uh, from the website, the mission statement is, Lily's Ray of Hope was founded by Cleveland kidnap survivor Michelle Knight, now known as Lily Rose Lee. After surviving 11 years of captivity and unspeakable abuse, Lily is truly a survivor and is vowed to empower and make a difference in the lives of others through Lily's Ray of Hope. Lily's Ray of Hope is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting and addressing the needs of women and young girls who have experienced physical and emotional abuse through domestic violence, human trafficking, and child abuse. So check out um, Lily's Ray of Hope at www.liliesrayofhope.org. And we will also, in our resource section of our website, suspicion.com, where you will have a link so you can find out more about where Michelle is right now and more about Lily's Ray of Hope. Something to point, something that I want to point out is that we are very, very excited to announce that you can now listen to us on Spotify and on Apple Podcasts. Yay, we're pumped, everyone. We're so pumped. So um, if you have Apple Podcasts or Spotify, just type in suspicion, S-I-S-P-I-C-I-O-N, and you can listen to us. Download. Like, review, subscribe. Yeah, as many of our favorite podcasts would say. <laughs> yes, exactly. Stay prepared. Live your life and stay suspicious. Oh my god. <laughs> what? <laughs> We're not using the pun enough. Wait, that's a that's awesome. <laughs> stay okay, suspicious. Stay prepared and stay suspicious. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Thanks. Bye. <laughs>